In those days Mordecai prayed to the Lord, calling to remembrance all the works of the Lord. He said, O Lord, Lord, you rule as king over all things, for the universe is in your power, and there is no one who can oppose you when it is your will to save Israel. For you have made heaven and earth and every wonderful thing under heaven. You are Lord of all, and there is no one who can resist you. And now, O Lord, God and King, God of Abraham, spare your people. For the eyes of our foes are upon us to annihilate us, and they desire to destroy, destroy the inheritance that has been yours from the beginning. Do not neglect your portion which you redeemed for yourself out of the land of Egypt. Hear my prayer, and have mercy upon your inheritance. Turn our mourning into feasting, that we may live and sing praise to your name, O Lord. Do not destroy the lips of those who praise you. And all Israel cried out mightily, for their death was before their eyes. Continuation of the Gospel according to Matthew As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him to the Gentiles to be mocked and scourged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Command that these two sons of mine may sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. But Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called to them and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The saving words of the Gospel. Um, the very last line of the gospel stands out. He's going to give his life as a ransom for many. Now that many could be a very large number, we don't know how large it is, but it doesn't imply everyone, does it? He doesn't, he, he, while he did come to give his life as a ransom for everyone, the ransom which he gives will be effective only for many. And that means that some it won't be effective for some, not by the Lord's choice, but by their own. But today we continue our spiritual pilgrimage to the Roman stations. Today we gather at San Giorgio in Velabro. We were there just the other day, kind of at the foot of the Palatine Hill. And we go across the Foro Boario, uh, kind of near to where the Temple of Portuna is. 
and there's a little area right down there near Santa Maria Cosmedine and San Giorgio and San Nicolae Carceri where there are a couple of ancient Roman temples. There's the Temple of Fortuna and one that was called the Temple of Vesta. And uh, I'm not sure that it's accurately named, but it's what I call the Temple of the Chinese Hat because it's it's round and it's got this like little Chinese hat roof. Anyway, you go across that and over the, to the Ponte Palatino and across the river to Trastevere and up the street of the Via dei Vascellari. The Via Vascellari is where the Palazzo dei Ponziani is. And the Ponziani family was the family of uh, Santa Francesca Romana, St. Francis of Rome. When I first moved to Rome, um, I lived there. And the rector of the place um, was also the rector of the Basilica of St. Cecilia, Santa Cecilia which is the Roman station today. And so he would take me along with him in the morning. In the beginning, we, we had to speak Latin together because um, my Italian was <laughs> not comprehensible by him in any way, at least. And so we, we spoke in Latin together. And uh, but that gave me a terrific opportunity because I was going into the cloister. There are cloistered Benedictine nuns there. And I was able with him to go in to serve Mass. And um, so I got to know the place real well. And, um, it's very dear to me. As a matter of fact, I said uh, my second mass I said there, um, and it was sung uh, by uh, the choir that I was directing. I directed a Gregorian chant scola at the time that was comprised of all of women, uh, many of whom worked for the city of Rome, the city of Rome government, the, and um, the Comune di Roma. And uh, it, uh, so I have great uh, fond memories of the of the place. It's a it's a lovely basilica. I'll let you look it up and, and take a look at these things. Anyway, the uh, the reading for the book of Esther is kind of interesting today. Um, yesterday we had a book we had a reading for the book of Daniel. Today we have a reading for the book of Esther, and both of them have to do with the dire straits of the people. And I think what we're doing here is we're really going back in time to the time when these mass formularies were being put together, and they reflect very much the attitude of the people about their own lot at the moment. Um, they were being, they were beset by by enemies, uh, terrible enemies. Um, the Lombards uh, were on the way. As a matter of fact, they were, they they did they did come to Rome, and uh, they were ravaging the countryside and ravaging the tombs and the cemeteries of their their ancestors and everything. It was a terrible thing. They were terribly afraid. And so this is the time when Gregory the Great um, stepped into the power vacuum in Rome and began to, to run things, thus bringing a new dimension to, to what it was to be the Bishop of Rome, uh, thus beginning the kind of uh, the beginnings of the medieval notion of papacy. In any event, um, we remember who, you know, what was going on in Esther. This is the 5th century in the B.C. And we, we have um, the, uh, the, the people are in exile, uh, the Babylonian exile. And there's a Jewish orphan girl rose to queenship under uh, the Persian um, Xerxes. And her uncle, uh, Mordecai, uh, Mordecai uh, basically saved the Jews from, from death because there was a, a, a wicked guy by the name of Haman. And uh, he was uh, uh, bent on the destruction of the Jews. And so they together managed to thwart his plans, and, 
and uh, so forth. Well, anyway, she becomes a, a symbol of Esther and Mordecai together become a kind of a symbol prefiguring Christ and uh, the church, the, the church and Christ's enemies. And so um, the, there is a connection, therefore, with the, what goes on in the gospel today about the Jesus pre, uh, predicting his death and resurrection for the third time, uh, that enemies will do this to him. And uh, Mordecai is praying lest enemies do uh, something terrible to the people. So I think that's, I believe that happens to be the, the connection there. Um, as insofar as the uh, second part of the gospel reading is, the request of the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, to the Lord that they sit on the left hand and the right hand in the kingdom of heaven. Well, it's quite a thing to do, especially in front of everybody else. And uh, you can see why the other ones might be a little bit, you know, miffed at what they did. But the Lord's um, words are, you know, quite stern about drinking the cup, drinking the chalice. You know, that means... That means a, a kind of suffering, which at this point in their lives, I think they, they could not quite imagine, even though the Lord has just been talking about being mocked, scourged, and crucified. They don't seem quite to be making the connection yet. Anyway, um, today, I think is maybe the second, is it the second time in a row? We are being given an image of those who are in authority having to be the servant of all. You know, it was Gregory the Great, the one who was starting to you know, formulate all these things that were that were being used in Mass in the ancient times, who began to use the title, or use the title, Servant of the Servants of God. And so that um, in, indeed encapsulates uh, what it is uh, to be an authority in the Church, is to, to serve, to, to serve and not to be served, as the famous line from this very Gospel expresses. So, a takeaway that we could have for this: when you see, when you see a, a, a when you see someone falling into a, a, a leader in the church, a cleric falling into clericalism, and you know there's a bad clericalism. There's, a, I think, it's a good clericalism. You know, clericalism is a word. I think they can go either way. Clericalism could just describe a kind of a, a clerical ethos in which. Clerics learn how to be clerics and be clerics with each other. Um, clerics are those who are set apart. Sometimes they just have to be apart with, them, with with each other and not with lay people. They have to be apart, and they have they have their own culture. And they have to have their own lore, and they have to have their own stories and history and so forth that they can they can have they can strengthen their identity amongst themselves um, without having to worry about uh, being around. Uh, lay people who might not quite understand what it is that they're sharing together. And uh, so that's why I, I used to have suppers for the promotion of clericalism, especially because, oh, clericalism, clericalism, clericalism. Well, there is a bad clericalism, too. And the bad clericalism cuts two ways, I think. There's the clericalism where the cleric wants to lord it over the others. And this is what the Lord is invade against both today and yesterday when he's talking about the seed of Moses and the scribes and Pharisees and how they behave toward, some, how some of them behave toward people. Not all the scribes and Pharisees did that, but some did. And some did so very obviously. That's one kind of clericalism. The other kind of clerical, and that shows contempt for the people over whom they are placed as leaders. There's another way to show contempt for the people who are 
are, shall we say, the sheep of the flock, or the pastor of the Lord. And that is to, to, to try to elevate them to kind of a semi-clerical state. In other words, in liturgical matters, to say, okay, well, all you lay people should come up into the sanctuary and then do things that are really priestly duties or priestly activities. Well, that's a, a, that's a, that's a subtle form of clericalism. It looks like, it looks like uh, you know, Father is being so humble. He's having all these people up there. But, you know, it really isn't. It's a, it, it's a way of saying your character as a baptized Christian isn't enough by itself. But I'm going to make you more by letting you come up into the sanctuary and do what I do. And it's a, it's a condescension. Now, I don't think that all, every priest who you know, has people come up and do stuff is, is actively thinking that I'm going to be condescending to these people. But it really is a kind of a condescension. The clericalization of the laity is an abuse of the laity. And it's not a way to serve them well. Dominus obisum. Oremus. Ate domine de vami arivan meam. Eus meus in de confido non erubescam, neque erilia me inimici mei et in universi qui te expectan, non confundentur.